Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast, where you can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I'm one of your hosts, Andrei Kurenkov. I just finished my PhD at Stanford, where I researched AI and robotics, and I'm now working at a Silicon Valley AI startup, like the rest of us Silicon Valley folk. Just such a, an absolute stereotype. And my name is Jeremy. I'm your other co-host. Uh, what can I say? I guess I'm, I'm like the AI safety guy. Um, I have a company called Gladstone AI. We do a bunch of AI safety stuff, AI alignment stuff, and AI policy stuff with uh, you know a lot of researchers that like the deep minds and the open AIs and stuff. And uh, Andre is up to something interesting right now. You can't see him. I can see him. He's in a hotel room. Tell, tell the audience about the hotel room and why you're there. I sure will. Yeah. So I'm in Hawaii, but I'm here sort of for work. Uh, so I'm at ICML, the International Conference of Machine Learning, which is one of the you know big ones, one of the ones that is kind of a big deal. There's thousands of people here. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's one of these conferences that is pretty prestigious. Uh, I have a paper here that I'm presenting, my very last paper of my PhD. <laughs> And uh, it's been it's been interesting, you know. It's it's fun to go to this last conference and see what people are up to. Last Friday, like just before we started recording, you were talking about how surprising it was that there aren't like a lot of LLM papers, or like there are less LLM papers than you expected. Is that? Uh... Yeah, I would have thought that would be sort of a big typical thing, yeah. but uh, there's still a lot of work going on in fundamental machine learning theory. There's a lot of work on reinforcement learning theory. And it, it did make me reflect on this that, you know, often people have this line of like, we have no idea how AI works, or we have no idea how deep learning works. And I would say I take some issue of that. So sure, if you train a model, you know, it, it's just a jumble of weights and you don't really know what the weights do per se and you don't fully understand what's learning. But at the same time, we do have interpretability tools and we do have theory and we have, you know, more and more insights about how large language models work. There's work on mechanistic interpretability from Anthropic, which has been really interesting. So I think it is worth keeping in mind when people pull out this this line that you know you have no idea what AI is. It's it's not entirely true. I feel like tropes like that are especially like outdated tropes are especially a thing in AI these days where people will uh, it goes in like both the safety and capabilities directions where you'll get people who say stuff like well, you know, an AI still can't do X. And it's like, you know, meanwhile, X was accomplished six months ago. It's just that like the field is moving so fast that a lot of people aren't aware of it. And in mechanistic interpretability is, you know, it's a field like that. Like, like you said, Anthropics made big strides and we'll be talking about um, not quite that, but something related to that today. And anyway, yeah, totally, uh, totally agree. Yeah, and it's it's always worth keeping in mind that any of these broad generalizations are bound to lack nuance. And in the end of the day, it's it's always a bit more complicated. So especially now that there's so much kind of mainstream coverage of more technical topics, uh, you know, it, it can be That's sometimes true. misleading. 
Uh, yeah, I, I would say that every single broad generalization lacks nuance. I think you can say that about every single conceivable broad generalization. Every single one, they all lack nuance. <laughs> but <laughs> some topics require more nuance and some topics less. You know, I think we can agree that racism is bad. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> okay, so moving on, we will have a quick uh, section for response to listener comments and corrections. Actually, we just got this review on Apple Podcasts where Radar3699 said, finally, an AI pod with qualified people keep up with good work so it's good to hear that apparently we're qualified uh maybe it's worth mentioning we did have a co-host last week from the super data science podcast and there are i would say a good number of ai podcasts with qualified people there are several that are hosted by academics i think peter beagle's podcast um robot brains or something you can look it up is quite good we have the gradient podcast where it's also hosted by like researchy people so you can find these podcasts but i'm sure there's now you know a whole wave of ones that are not quite with technical people by the way you, you mentioned like john crone who we had on uh, i guess last week's episode and i like i was super impressed with the depth of analysis that he brought to the table um and uh and also you know good to know that as per, you know, if he is to be believed, uh, he's probably listening to us right now from the shower. So I just did a quick little hi, John. Little, <laughs> yeah, little I hope your, your shaving of your head is going well. Uh, but yeah, I, I was just looking at the podcast and there's like 700 episodes. So I'm sure you pick up yeah. on, a few, on a few things from that. Uh, one more email we got, uh, James mentioned that, you know, they like listening and that, uh, especially they like having the links provided of the articles we discuss. So for anyone who doesn't know, if you go to the episode description on whatever app you're using, there are all the timestamps of all the articles we're discussing and links to each article. So you can skip whatever you find boring and it goes straight to the articles you think are most interesting if you don't have time to listen us to us for two hours or whatever <laughs> we tend to go. And just one more thing, Keith emailed, and uh, it's interesting, actually, Keith mentioned that there was a technical issue with Apple, Apple Podcasts where something wasn't downloading or whatever. So hopefully that's not happening to many people. But uh, yeah, always feel free to email us at contact at lastweekend.ai or comment on Substack or YouTube. We do keep an eye on it, and especially with corrections, that's very useful, or just any, any sort of advice. We'd love to hear from you. And with that, let's get to the news, starting with tools and apps. Starting with ChatGPT Plus gets custom instructions, allowing it to remember how you want it to behave. So this is a new feature where you can basically have like a global setting for any chat that you start. And it's motivated by things like, let's say you're a teacher, you use it to help research topics or create quiz uh, questions or things like that. Uh, for every new chat, it can be annoying to like start off saying, you know, I'm a teacher and I need your help with this or that. So now you can go and set this, you know, global uh, preference or instruction. Uh, and it's always there at the beginning of your chat, then you don't have to worry about it. 
Yeah, kind of an extension or a modification maybe to the system prompt setting that OpenAI had been exploring earlier where you, know, you can, and you can still use this, I believe, right as of right now, at least, where you can kind of, yeah, give some meta context to ChatGPT or GPT-4, whatever you're talking to, to be like, hey, you know, I want you to respond like this. Um, so I, I think this is just interesting as a user experience thing. We've seen so many things like this where like, you know, how are you going to surface generative AI search results? How are you going to allow people to give more subtle and nuanced instructions to these systems. And I think this is another one, like global settings. What kind of personality do you want to have, you know, have the system reflect to you? Um, this is another answer to that question. Yeah. And uh, speaking of which, actually, this is not a new feature, but as someone who has Android, I'm excited that ChatGPT is actually launching on Android finally. Right. It's not just on iOS, but this feature you can access either on the web or on the ChatGPT iOS app. So I think it's already pretty much live. Yeah, and I guess just a, a last kind of quick note on how they implement this too. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. They give two questions that you can answer for the system. Um, so like they'll, they'll ask, uh, what, uh, so what would you like ChatGPT to know about you to provide better responses? And how would you like ChatGPT to respond? And I thought that, that was a really interesting kind of partitioning of two different kinds of information to give. So anyway, for what it's worth. Mm -hmm. And next up, we have GitHub's Copilot Chat AI feature is now available in public beta. So GitHub has here re released this uh, Copilot Chat feature, which is this chatbot essentially. It's a chat GPT-like tool, and it's meant to help with coding. So you can kind of have this interaction with it where uh, you're not necessarily just giving an instruction, generating some code, but like provide additional context and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's aware of the, the code that it's generating. It has that context and it can give you real time guidance and analysis of your code and, and even help you troubleshoot and stuff like that. So really a, a, another kind of step by Microsoft GitHub, the kind of Microsoft GitHub open AI access, if you will, to like push the, uh, the frontier of code generation and, and put it in the hands of real users. Kind of cool. Yeah, for any developers, programmers, it's just going to be an extension on VS Code. If you're already using Copilot, it's probably just going to be part of uh, that extension. Personally, I would say I'm pretty excited. Uh, Copilot has been pretty good for speeding up my development, but it can be annoying. You know, it's limited. You can maybe add a comment and it makes code suggestions, but this can answer questions. Uh, this is contextualized in your code, so it can explain things. Uh, I have often, you know, if I'm having some issue, I have to go to chat. GPT and talk to it and have it generate code and then copy paste. So yeah, this is a nice little addition and uh, still not going to automate any programmers. But if you are a programmer and you haven't tried Copilot yet, uh, I yeah. would say it's it's probably a good time to to do it because it it honestly makes uh, programming less. It, it's more enjoyable because you can for any kind of easy stuff instead of looking up documentation or writing you know, for loop with some obvious code, you can just have ChatGPT generate it for you once you write a comment. Yeah, it's really helpful that like, it's always the most monotonous stuff that it does really well. Like a lot of the data cleaning and pre-processing functions, I just find it, it tends to do pretty well at. Um, I, I will say, I don't, I don't think we're going to talk about this article uh, today, but I, I saw something that said like Stack Overflow has had like they've slashed their user base by 50% over the last two years. 
and and stuff like this just like keeps making me think uh like i really hope stack overflow is okay because i yeah like i i could imagine you know as this turns into a chat bot you're really starting to deliver a lot of the value that stack overflow i almost said once did um still does but you know uh within the development environment itself yeah and that's kind of interesting right if you think about it stack overflow made up a lot and pretty big chunk of the coding uh of the training data sets as far as we can tell and you know you still will have new programming languages and and frameworks and so on coming out uh so if you have a stack overflow how do language models learn about these things i guess they'll need to read documentation like the rest of us yeah (laughs) yeah all right, and on to the lightning round. First, we have Wix's new tool can create entire websites from prompts. So Wix is one of the big sites where you can have uh, a GUI tool to create websites with click and drag. They can probably also do programming. I've never messed around with it. But they introduced this AI site generator where you can do text to websites. And that includes design, layout, text, and images. It combines in-house and third-party AI systems, so ChatGPT is part of it. And uh, yeah, kind of a no-brainer. We've seen various um, you know, instances of this. I, I still remember like in the early days of GPT-3, before ChatGPT, one of the things that kind of went big on Twitter was like, oh, wow, look, I can have GPT-3 write a website for me. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, back in the old days. It's it's kind of funny how you can almost like I can imagine a, a plot of like the context window of these models versus like the let's say number of user flows that they can accommodate on an app that they code up and just like I don't know what that fit would be but it's like more than linear it seems like which kind of makes sense you know the more fits in the context window you can do do like exponentially more with that um, and yeah they they kind of show I don't know they show a little, cool little interaction with this chatbot thing where you know the chatbot opens up and it's like, hi, I'm Wix AI. I'm here to help, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody writes like, I, I want to build a website for Onyx Online Fitness. We provide dynamic online classes and in-person workouts. Our trainers are certified, blah, blah, blah. And then the chatbot goes, that's great. Like any more details? And the person writes, we have a variety of fitness classes available, blah, blah, blah. And like, this is the kind of interaction you have. And then it just kind of like populates out this initial website, which, you know, super cool it does make me wonder like what happens when we talked about the proliferation of like you know not fake news but just articles generally that are ai written and the internet gets flooded by them well what about websites what about apps like it seems like that's very much on the horizon too um so i'm just really curious about what this does to i want to say the market like there's so many markets that are affected by this kind of thing but um i don't know i I personally just didn't click for me until Really, a couple of weeks ago, when I was starting to think about you know some of these these uh, website builder tools and things like that, where you're just like, wow, we could have just a proliferation of super cheap websites. Yeah, it's it's going beyond click and drag, which is still kind of time consuming. You have to modify a lot, so it's it's another instance in which it's a productivity boost. It makes things quicker, and another example where AI is just being integrated into everything as kind of the the user interface uh, at this point to to do whatever you need to do. Very true. And next up, we have Google Bard is now available in the EU. So this was uh, this harkens back to June um, because that's the time when Google was 
forced to delay Bard's rollout in the uh, in the EU. Um, and, and this was because the Irish Data Protection Commission, the DPC, uh, they insisted on stricter privacy measures to sort of help European citizens to protect their privacy. It's all kind of consistent with the GDPR stuff that Europe has set up to have extra strong privacy laws. And now uh, BARD has launched. And so they've done this, they say, after doing this, after ticking these boxes, they're providing users with uh, more information and kind of control over how their data is used and stored and all that. And so starting as of not quite today, but when the article came out, so I guess a couple of days ago now, um, BARD is available in like 40 languages here, including Arabic, Chinese, German, Hindi, and Spanish. And so a bunch of privacy features too that you can play around with and uh, sort of control your, your data a little bit more. You can pin and rename conversations, share them with friends, export stuff to Python code and to Replit and so on. So just a, a lot more kind of um, fine-grained control that you can have over the system. Yeah, so for all the EU people, that must be exciting. I will say I haven't played around with BART too much. And from what I've been hearing, it's still quite a bit behind in terms of capabilities, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is honestly kind of surprising. But I think it's, it's partially strategic, right? Because keeping it low powered also means it won't do any crazy shit that <laughs> some of these other things are doing. And moving on to the applications and business section, starting with an AI supercomputer worse to life powered by giant computer chip. So this is about Cerebras, which we've uh, chatted about on and off over the years. It's a startup that on, uh, that works on these AI-specific chips that are very different from the computing we have typically. So instead of GPUs, instead of CPUs, which have this whole uh, architecture of having instructions and having a whole program and having pretty small, you know, chips, right? If you've ever constructed a computer, you know, they're kind of, you can hold them in your fingers. These are entire chips that are, I don't know, like, uh, I don't know, like 20 inches or some pretty big size, uh, unlike what is generally the case with uh, chips, where like more like a niche. And for Cerebras, they've been saying that this means that it will be faster, it'll be more energy efficient. And they've been working at it for quite a few years. And now they're making partnerships and building supercomputers. Yeah, I think this one um, seems to be like a $100 million deal. Um, and they're you know starting to ship a lot of these supercomputers to Middle Eastern com uh, companies, Middle Eastern countries. It looks like the UAE is actually kind of making itself a big focal point of AI development. So we had obviously Falcon, we've talked about that, the large language model open source. Until like 30 seconds ago, it was the number one open source large language model, and now it's not anymore, but that's all good. Um, so, so they built that, really impressive, showed their domestic uh, capacity for building large language models. Um, but uh, here we have uh, Cerebrus doing this for a group called G42. So that's not quite the same as the group that made Falcon, but their G42 is still in the UAE. And um, interesting just to see that that kind of 
you know, environment mature. I didn't have the UAE builds super massive systems or collaborates with um, novel uh, compute service providers on my AI 2023 bingo card. But, uh, but this is definitely a, a cool development. It's interesting to see them step in and play such an interesting role this, uh, this early on in the race. Definitely, yeah. And uh, so this is with this group G42, and Cerebras is planning to build more of these supercomputers. So one in Texas, one in North Carolina, and then even more. And this is uh, kind of interesting. We often have talked about NVIDIA and how it has pretty much you know, ridiculous market dominance with its GPUs. Cerebrus is clearly a bit of a contender to knock that down, but there's still a lot of a struggle because uh, basically NVIDIA is not just about the chips, it's also about the general infrastructure, ecosystem, CUDA, and that's what people have been using for a decade to build their AI models. So... Yeah, cool to see kind of a bit of competition in hardware. And next up, we have Microsoft closes at record after revealing pricing for new AI subscription. And so this is all part of Microsoft's kind of big master plan, not just to to build powerful AI systems, but to actually deploy them at scale. And so this is about a big stock movement that happened, a 4% surge um, after Microsoft announced their pricing model for their new uh, Microsoft 365 AI subscription service. And so um, this is a thing called Copilot. It basically adds AI, it injects like AI capabilities into all the kind of office suite of products, you know, your Word, your Excel, your Teams. And it's interesting. So it's going to cost an extra 30 bucks a month. And the claim is it'll increase monthly prices for enterprise customers by about 83%, which is going to bring in a lot of additional revenue through all these, these subscriptions. And so um, pretty remarkable, the amount of lift, like the, the increase in pricing you can get from the value added here and starts to answer some of the questions that have been floating around about, well, look, you know, you're delivering these amazing capabilities, but they come at a cost. Compute is not cheap. You know, generative AI is going to cost you a lot more per query or per response to kind of flesh out, you know, the, the thing that you're asking for. You know, we saw this earlier when we were comparing, I think, earlier on the show um, or in a previous episode, rather, like generative search versus discriminative search. Well, this is the same thing. As you start to inject AI into all these products, the price goes up because there's more processing power you need to, to run in the back end to kind of power all this stuff. And it looks like they're, you know, comfortably charging quite a bit more here. And uh, if that works, then they're showing some real ROI from cutting edge AI at scale. Yeah, I think this is interesting, this particular business model. If you use ChatGPT, uh, their API, you would know that they charge per token. So the more mm-hmm. you generate, the more you pay, right? Here it's a flat sum of $30.00. So if you're a real power user, if you generate a lot of text, you know, you're actually having some savings. But uh, I guess we hope or they, they have data on this. So on average, probably they can actually make a profit with $30. And given the expense and given the potential productivity boost for these companies, they could definitely see it being a cost that they can, you know, live with. 
On to the lightning round, starting with Elon Musk through nine figure promises at top AI researchers. Last week, we discussed how there was the announcement of XAI, not X.AI, which we said last week, which is Elon Musk's uh, new company that appears to be sort of trying to compete with OpenAI and Anthropic, this kind of billion dollar uh, attempt to build, you know, gigantic models that are world class and really is not possible for most companies to even try to train. And so this is adding a little bit of detail to that, where, as the title says, if uh, you're a kind of a leading figure in the field, you can <laughs> you 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 can charge a lot for your employment. And in this case, clearly that was the case. Yeah, it it does even at that seem like quite a remarkable thing. So they're they're talking about how uh, Elon came up with this valuation for XAI of twenty billion dollars. Um, you know, keeping in mind this company doesn't yet have a product, right? So we have no necessarily no external evidence that they can pump out these LLMs in an effective way. I suspect they can based on everybody they have working for them. This is a stellar team. So I'm sure they'll put, put together something amazing. But this is a team that's pre-product. And we know OpenAI, right, when they raised their $10 billion from Microsoft at like a $30 billion valuation, they had a long track record of pumping up product. They were already scaled. They already had a ton of uh, infrastructure teed up. And so um, pretty remarkable if, if XAI ends up getting valued at $20 billion. Again, this seems to be a number Elon just kind of pulled out of his head. Um, and on the basis of that $20 billion valuation, he's giving away stock options to these employees that amount to something like $200 million in on paper money. Hard to believe, but it's like 200, 200 billion, sorry, $200 million in, again, on paper money. That's if you believe the $20 billion valuation, which Jeremy repeats himself, Elon just kind of pulled out of his head. So it's difficult to assess all this stuff and like what, what is actually real, what's not. Um, it, you know, if you're an engineer who believes that the company actually has that that value genuinely, then hey, sign on. Um, but but this isn't an entirely insane compensation level for these kinds of people. They're you know entry level or not entry level, but like fairly junior um, engineers working like a, at some of the frontier labs that I know that you know make order of magnitude like three, four, five million dollars a year. Stock options on top of that for very elite people. You can see justifying these insane, at least on paper. Um, uh, you know, salaries and, and bonuses and whatever. So, kind of interesting. Um, not not too surprising to see a, a fairly eccentric uh, move, let's say, like this from from Elon and XAI. But uh, it's an impressive team for sure, and hard to argue that they're not going to be at the frontier here. Yeah, and at the time of the announcement, there were twelve uh, you know founding members announced. So clearly, there was some success, uh, including some very notable names. Uh, so yeah, it will be definitely exciting to see what XAI will be up to. And next up, we have machine learning market to hit uh, 419.94 billion by 2030, according to Grandview Research Inc., which like, sorry, the first thing I notice here is just how incredibly specific this prediction is. 419.94. <laughs> uh, Boy, that's, yeah, they, they know what they're doing. 
Um, so yeah, essentially the global machine learning market they're saying is going to be, is going to rise, they think by 2020, 2030 to that level, um, with a cumulative annual growth rate of 34.8% between 2023 this year and then. So that is like a, a very significant growth rate. Um, it, it seems plausible. I, I, I could see it being considerably higher as well. Um, it could also be lower, who knows, but uh, they're saying that this market is being driven by increasing demand for, well, AI-driven solutions across industries and growing deployment of edge AI. So we're starting to see models get compressed or just smaller models generally be deployed on edge systems like you know drones and probably your toaster at this point. And so, um, yeah, I mean, nothing too surprising here. I don't know, Andre, did you see anything that uh, got your attention? No, yeah, it seems uh, pretty reasonable. This is from one of these uh, reports, market research reports that people buy to have these sorts of predictions. They say that kind of big chunks of the value will be in advertising and media, uh, healthcare, uh, a little bit of manufacturing, uh, so yeah, it, it seems like they also break it down by sector and it will, yeah, we know that it will be <laughs> a lot, right? So I don't know if it'll be exactly 419.94 billion, but, uh, yeah, pretty reasonable projection. Well, they didn't of, put the decimal be in there. They didn't know, Andre. They obviously know uh, that it's going to be 0.94. <laughs> it projects confidence, which is good. <laughs> it does. It does. Next, we have Jasper, Unity AI, startups cut workers as chatbot rivalry grows. So these two startups have been around for a little while. Jasper uh, is for ad copy. You know, you generate uh, ad wording for whatever business you're in. And yeah, there you go. So they lost some workers. It seems like ChatGPT has kind of, uh, I don't know, can, can replace a lot of these more custom applications that have been built on top of uh, GPT-3 earlier. So uh, I would imagine that's at least a part of that. Yeah, I mean, so every once in a while, as you know, I like to not give investment advice on the show. And this is one of those times where I'm not going to give investment advice, but um, you know, a while back, I, I have talked about a couple of times, I think, this idea that the more kind of powerful these language models get, the more general purpose. I think the faster you're going to find boom busts in startups like this. You know, a startup is going to look like a just absolutely amazing idea because what they do just was not technologically possible at all 20 minutes ago. So the whole landscape is free. All these users are free to be picked up. And there's no competition. But then like six months later, that same company that built the AI system that powers your niche application ends up getting so generally capable that it then swallows the niche application that you built on top of it. And I think this is part of the story here. Um, you know, I, I feel for Jasper. Actually, it's, it's CEO, co-founder I went through YC with back in the day uh, when I think his company was called Proof back then. But like, you know, this is the sort of thing that you see, right? Like business models that make sense in January stop being profitable in June. And ultimately, you know, uh, Dave uh, Rogan Moser from, Jas uh, from Jasper was saying, basically the company's laying off people in like a whole range of areas so they can focus down more tightly. Mutiny has the same issue and they're cutting, it looks like 30% of staff. So these are really like big, big losses um, that I think reflect not only fail to have high retention rates, which we've seen a lot in generative AI, but also this 
as you say, like this, this whole phenomenon of like chat GPT or the base model eating the end application. And so it's, it's part of this question of like, where is the value going to end up being stored long-term? Who are the actual long-term winners in the space? It's not clear that it's the application developers uh, or necessarily even the model developers. Maybe it's the, the compute providers, whatever else, but this is all part of that story. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to also we discussed there has been an uptick in investments in AI startups, but it's not been a crazy uptick. And in general, investments have you know not been quite as generous in the past uh, year or year and a half as, let's say, last decade, you had all these startups, tech startups getting crazy money uh, that was being thrown around. So... Uh, still, you know, it's not the case that there's just a flood of money for what I imagine is a big number of startups emerging. And next up, we have Cognaze raises $18 million, you know, speaking of fundraises in the space, uh, to build a better LLM for the finance sector, one that keeps humans in the loop. And so, uh, well, like the title says, $18 million for this uh, this company and their focus is on working with unstructured data in the finance sector. You know, the reason unstructured data is so important so important in the finance sector is that you're typically trying to pull in data from all these disparate sources, right? You want to look at earnings reports, you want to look at even blog posts from whistleblowers, you want to look at just like what are people saying on Twitter or you know, whatever else. A huge amounts of unstructured data. On, on, sorry, on X, yeah, that's right. How could I? How could I? Right. Twitter, the, the, sorry, X, the, art, the artist formerly known as Twitter. Um, exactly. So essentially, you're trying to combine all these snippets, and this is unstructured data, right? It's not neat little data tables. It's a bunch of text or a bunch of, of whatever. And so that's what, what uh, Cognase focuses on, and they've got customers that include credit ratings agencies, insurance companies, and so on. And just, yeah, part of the, the gold rush is people try to figure out, like, you know, is finance, is this particular approach going to stand the test of time? I think it's an interesting question here. You know, does this application, does this kind of application end up getting eaten by the base model as well? You know, we start to think about things like GPT-4 that can take in images and text at the same time, multimodality, definitely becoming more of a thing. At what point with that and increasing context windows and all that, like, at what point can you just turn to the base model and ask it for investment recommendations rather than you know looking at a, a kind of custom-made LLM? Obviously, the data matters here too, so that'll be a big part of their their play. But uh, anyway, really interesting uh, to see which which companies thrive and which don't uh, in the wake of these big developments. Yeah, this article notes that uh, Cognase in particular is keeping humans in the loop. So this is a combination of AI with human input to refine the analysis of unstructured data. And I would imagine in this sector, at least for now, it uh, makes a lot of sense because you need to understand the current situation of the world, right? What's happening, a lot of the trends that are a little less easy to summarize just via writing. Yeah. It's just more of an intuitive thing. And currently LLMs, of course, are trained on you know a lot of data from the internet, but generally aren't continually trained to know what's going on broadly. So in this space, it makes a lot of sense to combine people and their sort of knowledge of what's going on with analysis of documents. 
Last up, we have China's uh, OpenAI challenger, Zipu AI, gets Meituan funding. So Zipu AI is a Chinese challenger to OpenAI, and it has received funding from Meituan, a food delivery giant with a market cap of $100 billion. Meituan now owns a 10% stake in Jipu AI, and Jipu AI has recently raised hundreds of millions of yuan in a Series B round. It was founded in 2019 by a professor from Tsinghua University, a very kind of prominent university that does a lot of research. And it has open sourced its bilingual conversational AI, which is in closed beta phase. So yeah, this is an open AI-esque uh, endeavor for sure. Yeah, we we look at you know what are their their bona fides like what have they actually done? Um, so this this group, as you say, that spun out of Tsinghua University, um, they actually built uh, this model called the GLM one thirty billion or well the one hundred thirty billion parameter version of this model called GLM uh, about this time last year. And at the time, this was the most capable language model that was available to academic researchers, at least. So, you know, however impressed you are by the likes of Llama, you know, that, that's about how impressive that was at the time. Uh, so this is a real group that can do real things. And, um, and they've, they've had a big impact in that respect. And I think this is interesting to note, you know, a bit of a callback to a previous episode. So we looked earlier at um, Meituan, which is this, um, the parent company you mentioned with a like $100 billion valuation or so that acquired this company. Um, so they are making this investment at kind of an interesting time about three weeks ago. Right, the this company announced that they'd be acquiring light years beyond. We talked about that acquisition at the time, and um, uh, that was a company that had just just been formed. So, so it looks like they're really interested in making a lot of acquisitions, building up their internal kind of AI workforce. And uh, and I will say, light years beyond, there are a couple people calling that the Chinese OpenAI. So they're definitely in the mood for gobbling up Chinese OpenAIs. It's a coveted title, I'm sure. <laughs> it is a coveted title. <laughs> All right, and now kicking off our research and advancement section, we're starting with this paper. The title is A Real-World Web Agent with Planning, Long Context Understanding, and Program Synthesis. And when I first read the title of this paper, I was like, whoa, shit, like that, yeah, that's a big step to, to AGI. This is a team from Google DeepMind, by the way, and the University of Tokyo. Um, and, and it is impressive, but uh, it's also kind of got a bunch of um, fairly bespoke architectural choices that go into this. And so I think it's almost an interesting opportunity to see not only the impressive things that large language models can do in terms of manipulating, taking actions on the internet, but also some of the limits of those current techniques right now. And so um, just to kind of frame this up a bit. So this problem of navigating the web on real world websites uh, is one that's been really thorny, it turns out. That's what they mentioned in the paper. Um, so there are a couple of issues that make it really hard. The first is there's not really a clearly predefined space of actions that you can take because the internet is just like, there's so much stuff you can do. Uh, even on a specific website, there's so much stuff you can do. So you have this very large action space, this undefined action space. And you've also got this challenge that the, the, the long, these like long strings of HTML that are going into making up a website. Like a website, a typical website, has a huge amount of HTML. So you need a very large context window. You've got to be able, essentially, if you're a language model, to read this, to gobble up all of this text. And today's AI systems tend to have context windows that are just a little too short, and uh, that creates a challenge. 
And then there's a, a third issue where, you know, to, to do stuff on the internet, these systems need to be able to be really good at parsing HTML. And so you need a model that's really good at HTML. So what they're doing here is they're asking the question, okay, normally we try to solve these three problems by taking one big large language model and just throwing it at our problem, right? We do a bunch of like prompt engineering acrobatics and give it you know, maybe a bunch of examples of each kind of task that we wanted to complete. But what if instead we combined specialist models that were each fine-tuned for different subtasks that go into this? You know, you got one maybe that's fine-tuned for interpreting HTML and planning actions, and another one that's going to focus on program synthesis to actually carry out the next action. And that turns out to be what this system is. This is WebAgent. It's this LLM-based thing, that model or composite model that can complete all these navigation tasks on real websites, uh, following user instructions by, anyway, combining web actions together. And uh, yeah, it's got different modules. It's got one module that, that does this thing where it, it will parse the HTML and understand it and then come up with the next thing to do. And then it hands that off to a module that does program synthesis. Like, how do we actually implement this on the website. So anyway, I, th I thought it was kind of cool. Uh, last thing I'll just mention is they, they have a specially designed module for this um, website parsing to just kind of like understand what the model's looking at, the HTML. And the way they tackle that challenge is by using this special local global attention thing that, um, so this thing is using an attention, uh, attention um, architecture, basically like a transformer talked about those before, it's able to pay attention to certain bits of its input and not others. Um, but it's, it's got this mix of like being able to focus locally versus zooming out and globally, which is really important for HTML because it has this nested structure. There's kind of a natural hierarchy to it. So that turns out to be a really big part of the, the solution here. Anyway, I thought it was kind of a, a cool example of, you know, hacking something together that seems a little bit more, you know, less general than you, you might expect given the trends in the space. Uh, but that does perform much, much better than traditional approaches on this task. Yeah, and I will say, I think as far as trends go, we have had, you know, in terms of what people are using, definitely a lot of work on just language models, which are general models. But at the same time, I think there's been quite a few papers and some of what we have discussed that are more what we call system type papers. So it's not a single model, not a single algorithm, but a combination of parts, some new, some existing that together can be made to work and solve a task. So this here has you know, three steps, it plans sub-instructions, it summarizes long HTML pages into task-relevant snippets, and then provides actual programs on websites. And via this combination of steps, it is able to actually succeed. So they say that uh, there's an improvement on the success rate by over 50% on real websites, as opposed to these kind of simulated websites that have orders of magnitude, smaller HTML. Uh, so yeah, I think it's it's a you know, nice example that uh, it's not just uh, academics don't just do, you know, like crazy theoretical stuff, uh, especially in AI, a lot of work is more applied. It's more on solving tasks. And, you know, a lot of what we have nowadays, uh, especially in text to image, you know, language models, of course, in general, is still uh, pretty recently from the academic realm being moved on into the, uh, you know, commercialized realm.
Yeah, that's a really good point. And you're right about that kind of dichotomy between the kind of framework papers and the, oh, look at what we just built papers and the theory papers. Like there, there really is that you know, fairly clear distinction. One, By the way, one cool thing I've, I found sort of surprising, I don't know if I should have, but uh, they apparently used, so one of the models in their whole setup was Flan UPOM, uh, which they used to actually generate code that would be implemented to kind of take that next action. And that that's like the full model. Like they used, it's a 540 billion parameter model that came out a while ago. It was a big kind of big story when it did. Um, and yeah, like this, that that's a, that's a lot of compute that like this is Google using their own big behemoth internal model. So cool that they're, they're uh, applying it to academic research like this. Okay. And the next story is, is ChatGPT getting worse over time? A study claims yes, but others aren't sure. This is a blog post that is uh, doing a bit of a summary and commentary on this paper. How is ChatGPT's behavior changing over time? From Stanford and UC Berkeley, and yeah, this this was uh, stirred up quite a lot of conversation online because uh, let's say empirically. Uh, you know, in Reddit, Hacker News, lots of people have been saying, oh, ChatGPT is just useless now. It's gotten so much worse. It can't do the stuff that uh, it used to do. And so a lot of people kind of jumped on this and were like, oh, I was right. It, uh, you know, actually is getting worse. But as this blog post notes, research-wise, it's not quite that general a conclusion. So they actually focused on a kind of a subset of ways to evaluate and the main findings about where ChatGPT got worse is uh, pretty narrow. It's on math uh, problem solving and code generation dealing with prime numbers. And yes, you know, on these metrics, it has gotten worse uh, empirically by quite a lot. But at the same time, it's not the conclusion that ChatGPT is just worse. It's just qualitatively quite different in various ways. And one of those ways is for this particular problem, it just doesn't do as well. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, I, like, I was surprised by how drastic the drops were, even, even accounting for the fact that it was just looking at narrow uh, you know, narrow applications, like the prime number thing, they, they ask it to, you know, they show it a number and they're like, all right, is this number a prime number? And like, it's pretty radical. Like it's about as big as it could be. Like initially in March, 2023, uh, GPT-4 scored 97.6%, basically every time it would get it right. And uh, by June, it was hitting 2.4%. So it went from being right basically every time to being right basically never. And the exact opposite seems to have happened with GPT 3.5, where the performance went from 7.4 to 86.8%. So you're, you're seeing that across a couple other tasks in, in somewhat less dramatic ways. Um, but yeah, people have been floating a bunch of theories about why this is happening. Uh, some more or less conspiratorial than others. The more popular ones are like, oh, you know, maybe OpenAI is, is distilling their models. Um, so basically like, training a smaller model to emulate the behavior of the full, say, GPT-4 model, just because it's cheaper to run a smaller model. And that is very likely happening, in fact, almost certainly happening in, in various forms, both in OpenAI and Microsoft. Um, but uh, yeah, another uh, possibility people have floated is like, maybe as they've been fine-tuning the model more to make it safer, to make it behave you know, in ways they think is better, 
there's a little bit of what's known as catastrophic forgetting. So as you fine tune the model on more stuff, it starts to forget stuff that it used to know. That's one possibility, uh, but it's pretty unclear. And, and you know, Andre, to your point, they cite this skeptic who says, uh, you know, the, and I'm quoting here straight from the article, uh, the change they report is that the newer GPT-4 adds non-code text to its output. So this is when we're looking at uh, the quality of the code that GPT-4 outputs. Basically, they would ask GPT-4 to like write a code that solves a problem, and they would immediately try to run that code. And sometimes it would break, not because there was a problem with the code, but because the newer versions of GPT-4 add a bunch of context text around the code saying like, oh, you know, here's how the code works, blah, blah, blah. And then the code snippet shows up. And that context text doesn't obviously compile, like it's not programmable code. So obviously when you just go and paste the full GPT-4 output into your Python interpreter and like run it, things break. So you may be artificially inflating uh, the, the failure rate of the system just because of that behavior, which doesn't necessarily track like its capability. So a lot of room for amb ambiguity kind of interpretation here. Yeah, and uh, here, yeah, they they don't make any you know extravagant claims in the abstract. They say that overall our findings shows that the behavior of the same LLM service can change substantially in a relatively short amount of time, so a few months, highlighting the need for continuous monitoring of LLM quality. So regardless of you know you care or you don't care about prime numbers or, or coding. It's still the conclusion is is not huge that it's it's getting worse or better, but rather that there are substantial changes that uh, unless you're you know kind of looking out if you're using it for a particular task, you may have changes in behavior that can improve or or degrade uh, the performance. And onto our lightning round, we have a simple yet effective design coupled with a remarkable durability and low cost make this robotic gripper a promising option for many industries. No, it's not 2 a.m. And no, you're not watching television. This is not one of those cheap uh, sham wow ads. This is a description of an actual AI system. So a bunch of researchers from the Japan Advanced Institute of Technology put together this robotic gripper, um, and it's called ROSE. It stands for Rotation-Based Squeezing Gripper, and it's cost-effective, it's durable, it's versatile. Um, there are a couple of cool little factoids about this thing. So first off, you, know, you always want these things to be easy to manufacture, and this is done using 3D printing and liquid silicone rubber. So very scalable, suitable for mass production, big selling points. Um, they've tested it really hard. So apparently, this thing can withstand 400,000 trials and stay functional. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Um, and uh, anyways, it, it's it's all kind of part of this like bringing AI into the real world thing that does seem to be so hard, right? We need like robotic systems that have features that are really difficult to design and engineer. So kind of cool that we're seeing you know, more and more of this sort of like realistic, uh, you know, rubber meets the road type of uh, setup become possible. Yeah, and, and this plays into this whole area of soft robotics. So when you think about robotics, you're probably thinking about you know metal and motors and, and very hard kind of uh, mechanistic or mechanical designs. But in fact, there's been a lot of work in this area of soft robotics, which is more nature inspired. You know, it's soft literally, so it uh, can like change shape, it can squeeze, it can 
kind of uh, rotate. In this case, they name it rose because it takes inspiration from the blooming stages of a rose. So it kind of has this rubber that rotates to squeeze stuff and grab it. And there's a lot of advantages over having a mechanical hand with fingers for this sort of thing because, you know, fingers are hard. Uh, designing something that works and controlling that sort of thing is is very complicated and expensive. So having this sort of thing where it's relatively simple, but it can grip a lot of objects easily, which is one of the main things you need in um, in industry, uh, is uh, yeah, it's it's uh, very useful, and I think it's it's cool to highlight that this is a whole sub area of robotics that is pretty different from what you usually think about robotics. Next uh, story, deep fake videos prompt false memories of films in half of participants. So deep fake videos of movie remakes that don't exist can prompt false memories in participants where simple text description of uh, fake movies can lead to similar false memory rates. And if you visualize it, the participants can say, oh yeah, I, I remember this or whatever. But uh, of course, in this case, they don't. And yeah, it, it's an interesting result, right? Because you can imagine it's not just changing, like let's say misinformation about what's going on right now, which can be easy to verify or not. But now you can uh, actually mess with memory of what happened by generating, let's say, plausible things, uh, such as in this case, a deep fake of a remake uh, starring different actors, such as Will Smith as the character of Neo, or Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie in The Shining. And yeah, they asked 436 uh, people in a survey that included this watching of deepfake videos. And uh, it's it's not too different from what has already been found with regards to memory. Like it's it's pretty easy to trick people into remembering things that didn't actually happen. Uh, so it's not crazy. It's not something that's overly special to defects, but uh, it is worth knowing, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, like to me, it, it kind of seemed like one of the the take homes was. Uh, how stupid the brain is because they're like hey idiot like you thought we need like fancy deep fakes to make you think that neo or that uh will smith played neo well actually we can do it with text alone and in a weird way i found that like slightly deflating for the whole deep fakes thing because it's just like oh we can we can just do this with text uh which is a point that the authors kind of make at the the end of this but yeah i mean it is another vector right so i guess if you're not convinced by the text maybe you'll be convinced by the video um so yeah kind of uh, interesting to note for sure yeah, looking at the abstract now, it actually says deepfakes were no more effective than simple text description at the sorting memory. So I guess this is good in the sense of like, let's not freak out too much about AI. And one last thing I, I'll note, as is often the case with AI research, there's quite a fun title here. So it is face slash off changing the face of movies with defakes. And uh, if you're a movie person, you may know what face off is quite a fun movie starring Nicolas Cage and uh, John Travolta. I, I will say, and, and kudos to them for, for trying to make a funny title. Um, it, it, I'd, I'd be really curious to see what 
like how the population's clustered. Like, was it is a given person if if you're more likely to be fooled by a text description of a fake movie, are you also more likely to be fooled by the video description, or is the video description opening up another population of people who can be fooled? If that's the case, then it actually may be you know pretty significant or interesting uh, interesting development. But uh, the, anyway, the the write up that we have here doesn't actually say that, so maybe you'd have to dive into the paper to find out. Yeah, it's it's kind of a lengthy paper. It's like 16 pages. I will say I'm kind of sad. There are no actual pictures in the paper. So <laughs> you cannot <laughs> see. Yeah, there's a bunch of figures with like pie charts and so on. Uh, but uh, yeah, there's no pictures. But there's a website where you can see all the materials and so on. So maybe we'll link to that and you can check out these deepfakes. And next up, we have researchers from Tsinghua University introduce a novel machine learning algorithm under the meta learning paradigm. And I thought, you know, as much as anything, this is like a useful opportunity to introduce our listeners to meta learning because I don't think that we've specifically talked about it or, um, sorry, not even meta learning, but um, semi supervised learning in like an explicit way. So, uh, supervised learning, you take your AI model, you uh, have a bunch of data, and each sample in your data set. There's a training label, and you're trying to you're going to feed the model the training sample and get it to predict that label, right? So you might have images of people's faces, and then you might have a label that tells you the age of those people, and you're training your model to predict the age from the image, right? Now, label data is super expensive; it's super hard to collect. So often, what you try to do is use unlabeled data to train your model, and uh, basically, this is just data that you don't have labels for. And there are a whole bunch of techniques that you can use to do this. But uh, what's, what's happening here is they're looking at, at combinations of using labeled and unlabeled data. So some supervised learning and some unsupervised learning to do this. It's called semi-supervised learning. It's kind of an established thing in the field that goes back for quite some time. Uh, and it's basically they're, they're looking at a technique that allows you to um, essentially take in unlabeled data, have your AI model generate, like predict a label for it based on the label data that it has seen in the past, and then use those labels uh, to retrain itself, uh, essentially use them as if they're, they're real labels to, to then retrain itself to actually predict those same labels in the future. This is called pseudo-labeling. Um, anyway, the, they, they come up with a technique that allows them to intelligently kind of, um, let's say, balance which samples kind of weight some, to weight some samples more than others in this process. And that's roughly it. Anyway, that might have been the shittiest example of an explanation of this whole concept that I've ever given. Uh, maybe we can even skip it if it's, if it's I think it's not too bad. Uh, I will say, as you mentioned, there's also a big component of meta learning here. Actually, another fun title, or maybe not quite as fun, but still very kind of clear. The title is Meta slash Semi, a meta learning approach for semi-supervised learning. So meta semi makes a lot of sense. And meta learning, is uh, to just you know make it very clear is this idea of learning to learn quickly. So that's why if there's a meta component. You're learning across a range of tasks, and when you encounter a new task, you can learn it quicker with less data. Uh, so now we're combining these two paradigms to you know require even less uh, labeled data because you can do both self-supervised learning and middle learning. And it's it's a bit of a combination of two existing ideas that are pretty big. So definitely, yeah, an interesting uh, 
kind of approach and idea that uh, I'm kind of surprised hasn't been done before, but uh, yeah. now it has been. I, I find that so surprising in a lot of these cases, right? Like the average or the medium, like machine learning paper, when I read it, I'm like, oh, like did, has nobody done this before? But there's just so much to do that like, yeah, there's uh, anyway, lots of low hanging fruit. And last story in the research section, ML Commons launches a new platform to benchmark AI medical models. M ML Commons, yeah, has launched this MedPerf uh, to benchmark and evaluate medical models. Uh, ML Commons is this organization that uh, in part is all about benchmarking and having a standard uh, way to evaluate things. If you don't know, benchmarking is a pretty, you know, a very important part of AI, actually having a data set, not just for training, but also for testing. Uh, us as researchers, one of the sort of important things when submitting a paper is typically to run it on the established benchmarks and show that you have the best numbers compared to all the previous numbers. And so now there's a new benchmark uh, it was built with input from over 20 companies and more than 20 academic institutions. And yeah, it's it's a big deal. Yeah, and they, they also include some, some stats about uh, people's perspectives on AI in healthcare. And they, they also describe in the article like this as mixed feelings, let's say. They have 55% believing that uh, AI is not ready for use in the space and only 26% trusting it. So I, I think this, this whole idea of benchmarking, it's one of those things that actually allows you to build that trust in an objective way. And, and one of the big challenges, because so much of this generative AI stuff that's being used in healthcare, for example, in this case, is difficult to evaluate. It's like really difficult to tell, you know, how, how did you manage to, to generate a, you know, a compassionate, let's say, readout of a medical exam to a patient? Very difficult to assess that. Uh, very difficult to assess the truthfulness or factuality of, of these models. And so, you know, the best we've got right now is is things like these benchmarks. So, hopefully, it does push uh, trustworthy deployment of these systems in in the medical context. Yeah, and of course, it is a pretty high stakes scenario, right? You really don't want to mess up benchmarking for medical yeah. data because maybe you'll actually be using this. So they did spend two years on this and they show that a big important component of this is benchmarking on real world diverse data. So they have data not just from the US, but also from South America, or at least that is the general goal here is to have a big sense of variety so that there's no bias or you know, incorrect conclusions in general. Oh, quick note, I just realized we skipped the open source section. I didn't even say it. That's because we didn't have any open source stories this week. Uh, so there's just not been as much media coverage of open, oh, source, open source recently. Uh, and I think that we generally do try to cover things that have articles associated with them. But uh, I will say if you're a listener and you keep up with open source and you see some new cool open source uh, package or you know development project, feel free to email us and highlight it uh, just so that maybe we are missing out on a lot of stuff that's worth covering and you can flag it for us and we will actually talk about open source instead of just skipping it. I think it's, we're, we're in the Llama 2 aftershock phase. It's, it's a tough act to follow. Yeah. 
All right, uh, moving on to policy and safety, we have a very feel-good title here, Our Oppenheimer Moment, The Creation of AI Weapons. And this is a New York Times opinion piece that was written by Alex Karp. He's the CEO of Palantir. If you don't know Palantir, this is uh, a, a big tech company that has a lot of kind of collaborations with the DOD. They basically make software for for uh, the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense and and also for other uh, defense departments and, and national security departments around the world. Um, and this is a I think a very important perspective to be aware of uh, on kind of AI risk and, and how to think about the whole landscape. And it's got a little twist in it that uh, I, I thought was a little bit funny. So. Um, you know, in Silicon Valley, one poll in this whole kind of AI risk debate is the sort of like techno optimist libertarian take that roughly says, hey, like, uh, don't worry about, uh, you know, rogue AI scenarios. Um, we should be using this stuff. We should be, you know, put, you know hitting the, the pedal of the metal on AI as much as we can. Uh, the problem is not that AI is too dumb. The problem is, sorry, the problem is not that AI is too smart. The problem is that it's too dumb. So let's accelerate. And so he, he starts the article off by talking about, look, people are freaking out about GPT-4 and how impressive it is. Um, the six month pause letter, the White House stuff, like all this stuff that you'll know if you listen to the podcast regularly. Um, but then he says, uh, this is pulled straight from the article. We must not, however, shy away from building sharp tools for fear they may be turned against us. And he basically takes the view that, look, there's an international competition on AI capabilities that forces us to forge ahead. Um, you know, he, he's kind of he gives it off this vibe of like, hey, you've got these Silicon Valley elites that are telling us to freak out. But the real risk is losing the geopolitical competition to adversarial states like you know Russia and China. That's kind of the vibe of this thing. And, um, you know, I, like I understand the take, certainly. I, I think it it, you know. In my opinion, it kind of fails to to you know actually engage with some of the the articles for catastrophic risk from these systems. Um, but you know his position is, hey, forget about the catastrophic risk, whether because he doesn't think it's it's a real thing or because he thinks that it's worse to lose to China um, and it's not worth trying to you know, coordinate a slowdown with them. Which I don't I don't necessarily agree with that. But um, one thing that I thought was funny though, so after having teed this whole thing up, there's this plot right in the middle of this article. And what they're trying to trying to get you to, to do is compare nuclear devices with machine learning systems and kind of the rate of development of them. And so the, the metrics that they use to compare these two things, for nukes, they use explosive yield in kilotons, which makes sense. You know, how big of a boom do you get? And you see over time how the boom gets bigger and bigger, okay, as we get better and better at making these you know, scary, powerful systems. Um, but then for machine learning systems, the number that they use is the number of parameters, the number of parameters in these AI systems. And they're kind of framing it as like, yeah, the more parameters you have, the smarter this thing is, the more dangerous it is. That's like having a more explosive yield, a more dangerous super weapon. And like, that is, if you had to pick a number that was like the most misleading, um, I would say the number of parameters is up there. Uh, just like very quickly, like this is the Jeremy nitpick, but like you could instantiate a version of GPT-4 today on your computer with like 500 trillion parameters, assuming your computer had big, big enough memory to just store that, with like all random numbers. And you could just call that a 500 trillion parameter model. Like there, technically you could say that. Uh, what really matters is the amount of compute that you invest and the amount of data that you invest to kind of 
actually update those parameters so that they have values that are good. So they actually cite two Chinese models as being like the biggest that have been made so far and implicitly the most dangerous. When those models, just if you know the history of AI in the last couple of years, those are like kind of well-known models that are, they're, they're not dense nets. They're these things called mixture of experts models that tend to have way more parameters than, than compute budget. And so they, they radically overestimate the capabilities of these systems. So anyway, I just thought it was like this interesting little bit of uh, maybe a journalistic error, getting people to focus on parameter count rather than, than compute. Totally understandable. It's just like one thing to look out for when you're looking at a system. The sheer number of parameters is not the thing that tells you how impressive it is. You know, Compute plus data plus parameters to some degree. Those three things have to increase together to give you effective scaling. And anyway, I just thought that was an interesting little side note. Yeah, I think it, it is worth uh, highlighting. Uh, this is a guest editorial, right? So it's not, let's say, on a journalist, but the editor presumably did uh, look at this guest essay. The author, the CEO of Palantir, worth noting, Palantir works with the US uh, Department of Defense. They build technology for uh Definitely the army, I think maybe, and you know, a lot of the government, let's say. Uh, this graph is, uh, there is a visualization of the explosive yield at kilotons and the number of parameters. It's like, they tried to make the two look similar, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty amusing. Like, you know, explosive yield is, is pretty directly like, this is what it's doing parameters, you know, it may or may not lead to better performance. And in fact, in this article, they say that we have learned that more, the more parameters a model has, the more expressive its representation of a world and the richer its ability to mirror it. And that's not necessarily false, like we do have scaling laws, but it's not exactly true either. Uh, so it's worth noting. I will say a lot of this article is not just about this uh, arms race, so a lot of it is drawing this parallel. Kind of the broader point here is that uh, we should work on AI for the military, basically, which of course Palantir does. Uh, there's a quote here towards the end that says, I fear that the views of a generation of engineers in Silicon Valley have meaningfully drifted from the center of gravity of American public opinion. The preoccupations and political instincts of coastal elites may be essential to maintaining their sense of self and cultural superiority, but do little to advance the interests of our republic. Uh, anyway, it's, it's uh, let's say, a little bit... Uh, the commentary here is kind of grandiose in a way that is uh, not something I think is uh, fun to read. But it is true that there is a big sense in tech broadly that working with the military and building military tech is something you should not do or is something kind of looked down upon. And I do think there is a real argument to be made that National defense, self-defense is important. And as we get very powerful AI, it is a real ethical question of like, should I help to build uh, AI for weapons, AI for self-defense? Uh, the instinct for many people is just, no, I don't want to work on AI for military. But this essay kind of challenges that. And I think I do sympathize with that kind of general stance. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's um, you know one way or another. Like you, you can't have a country that isn't competitive on AI for net, from a national defense standpoint. Um, there's you see this tense interaction between those two things of like we need to accelerate for national defense, but we also worry about the the risks, you know, malicious use and and maybe catastrophic risk from accidents, things like that. And it's it's interesting how incentives shift your views about one or the other. Like if you need to accelerate AI to make money. Yeah, you know, maybe you're less likely to worry about the catastrophic risks, and and you know that that sort of, sort of seems to come across in this uh, this article as well. So sort of interesting. Yeah, and I guess my last thought on this is it's kind of weird in a sense for this uh, comparison of bombs to parameters because you know these are general purpose models, GPT three. Like we are going to develop it. People are making giant models. <laughs> Even though you can use them for military applications because of a general purpose, people have sort of accepted of like, let's build it. And yes, people will use it for various things, but whatever, it's it's worth it. Uh, and Palantir doesn't really do that sort of thing. They build sort of uh, tools that have AI components, a lot of for data analysis. We've talked a while back about how they built a tool that incorporates language models for data analysis. So it's kind of misleading to say, oh, you know, the coastal elites don't want to be partaking in this arms race when in fact, that's what we are doing. We are building really, really big language models, whereas Palantir is building tools for the military that are not, you know, in any sense about this arms race. And next up, we have this post. It's um, it's not a news article per se. It's a post that was put out by Anthropic, uh, which again, along with OpenAI and DeepMind and maybe a couple other labs, is really one of the main uh, large language model companies. And they've been especially active in AI policy recently. And we'll be talking more about that later. But uh, this is a post called Frontier Model Security. And it deals with this question of, you know, as we're building more and more powerful systems, you know, to um, Alex Karp's point in that uh, New York Times opinion piece that we just talked about, you know, these things can be weaponized. You know, general purpose models can be weaponized. Eventually, if these systems do meet or exceed human capability across a wide range of areas, like we have to start thinking about them as effectively super weapons. I mean, they can be used as that. And so you got to worry a lot about the cybersecurity measures around these systems. That's something that's been talked about a lot in the AI safety community. It's not enough to just align these models and make them safe. You got to prevent you know, bad actors from you know, hacking them or, or getting access to them. Um, and so essentially, this is a post that uh, makes that argument that says that, hey, we need to be thinking about advanced AI as something like critical infrastructure, the advanced AI sector as something like critical infrastructure um, in terms of, as they put it, the level of public-private partnership in securing these models and the companies developing them. And then they advocate for what they refer to as multi-party authorization, uh, uh, sorry, multi-party authorization to AI critical infrastructure design. It's a bit of a mouthful, but it's basically just the idea that you should never have a very powerful AI system that like, one person can just be like, hey, I'm going to go use this. Like, I have the keys to the system. You want multi party authorization, like two people who have the keys, let's say, or more to actually get access to this model. It's something that um, Anthropic is already doing. It's something that they say, you know, even emerging AI labs that don't have a ton of resources can implement pretty easily. And you see them leaning into like this question of like, what is the practical stuff that you can be doing right now to secure these models quite a bit? 
Um, and then they also talk about some software engineering best practices that we ought to be applying to this space. And they talk about the gold standard for these sorts of practices being a NIST secure software development framework that are SSDF and the supply chain levers for software artifacts, the SLSA, all very exciting sounding things, um, but that are actually really important. You know, we get used to thinking of security as something we can yeah, kind of ignore because we it doesn't come up as long as everything's going well. And, and they're just flagging like, look, we learned these lessons already in software engineering. We need to apply them to AI as these systems get unacceptably powerful for not having any security around them. Um, so yeah, I mean, essentially this is just them walking through all these strategies that they're already using and then calling for, among other things, a public-private cooperation between Frontier AI Labs and the government uh, to secure this space and really start to view it as the critical infrastructure that they claim, and I would agree, uh, it really seems to be. Yeah, so a lot to digest here, uh, starting with Frontier AI. I'm not sure we've uh, discussed that term or had that term, and some people on X uh, have taken some issue with that. There was, you know, foundation models was just something people were starting to accept. Now you have Frontier AI, but it, it's a logical term. Uh, yeah, we, I think we can agree on topic is a Frontier AI lab. And yeah, they talk about this two-party control, a uh, very intuitive idea is for nuclear weapons, two people with two keys are needed to you know do that. Or actually, they say for you know vault vault security, two people with two keys are needed to open the most secure vaults. And there are similar kind of analogies in software. And yeah, they're just saying you know if you're developing a very big, a very powerful AI model, you don't want your infrastructure to be hit, and you don't want to your model weights to leak and to go to, you know, let's say hackers, right? Or or nation states that you consider to be opposed to the principles of your company or the national interests of your country. So we can of course say Russia has been known for hacking a lot and uh, is generally opposed to the US these days. So I think really that's an example, right? Where Russia doesn't have the infrastructure and the talent uh, for the most part to compete on this AI front. And most countries don't, honestly. Uh, so kind of uh, an interesting thing to post publicly, I would say. But I suppose the idea here is uh, trying to push uh, generally AI uh, to be aware of this, uh, AI companies and labs. They say even emerging AI labs without large enterprise resources can implement such controls. Uh, so it's an opinion piece uh, in a way, and it's it's a way to change the standard practices going forward. And going to the lightning round, actually, also on, on Fropic. Uh, so we have this article, The One Billion Gamble to Ensure AI Doesn't Destroy Humanity by Vox. And this is all about Anthropic. And it's kind of an overview article about Anthropic and how it's founded, how it's focusing on X-Risk and AI safety broadly and how they do AI safety research. So there's really no news to cover in this, but I think Anthropic is something that comes up quite a lot. It is quite an interesting company. And if you're interested in learning more about how it came about, what it is doing, this is a good article to read. 
Yeah, I mean, I, there is a little bit of news buried in it. They really buried the lead in this one, but it, it is largely an overview article. I will say, I think this is simply the best article that I've seen on Anthropic so far. Um, it, it accurate as far as I can tell, thorough, just you know, chef's kiss here. And and the you know it's a usual like kind of uh, New York Timesy sort of or. or well, that, that sort of vibe. It's a Vox article, but it's got that kind of New York Times vibe where they start the story off with this almost Socratic dialogue between uh, Evan Hubinger, who's who's one of the, the big um, AI safety researchers over there who came from Miri before um, and, and kind of discovered some things about inner alignment a few years ago, and Jared Kaplan, who was the lead on the Scaling Laws from Your Language Models paper back in the day. So two really uh, kind of big researchers, and they have this back and forth, and, and it's all about one of the key trade-offs at Anthropic that they're kind of trying to deal with. And it's this question of like, how do you trade off the need to build very powerful systems, but also to make them safe? Because you can't necessarily do safety research without building the system. That's That seems to be one of the paradoxes with AI. And you can imagine the sort of like internal debates that are happening in Anthropic, like do we push that next level of capability or you know, have, are we ready for it? Do we have safeguards for it, um, or, or does something go wrong? And it's, it centers around Anthropic's empirical mindset, where they're like, we gotta just work with these systems in, in the real world and see what they do, rather than just navel gaze. Uh, that's a controversial view because it is very possible that that goes horribly wrong. You could, you know, leap ahead in capabilities without having the the mechanisms in place to control these systems. And so, within the AI safety community, it's controversial, but considered somewhat interesting and promising at the very least. Um, one of the, the so the, the key piece of news though here is they talk about the setup that Anthropic uh, is looking at for for their kind of corporate governance. So Anthropic, for context, is a public benefit corporation. So they're not a traditional for profit. So that means so basically laws that govern these public benefit corporations they explicitly state that officers of the corporation have to consider the interests of the general public in their decision making. So it's not just about shareholder value. And as part of that, they're doing a, a setup where they're setting up this like board of uh, trustees that have special shares in the company, controlling shares, but that don't give you upside. They're, 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 there's not an obvious way to make money off those shares. And um, the, the sole purpose of this board is to impose kind of pressure on the company to stay true to its initial kind of stated objectives. I will say that that board include or the five trustees include Jason Matheny, who is a really big voice in AI safety, very um, high up. He's the CEO of the Rand Corporation. He used to be an aide at the Biden White House, very senior aide there. And Paul Cristiano, the former head of OpenAI's alignment team, who heads up the Alignment Research Center now. Um, so it's, it's a very safety focused board. Um, last thing I'll just mention, you know, Jack Clark, who's their head of policy there and one of their co-founders, um, he came out and said, uh, basically, he, he's, he's framing up their view on risk. And I thought this was a really good nutshelling. He says, I'm saying you need to, so you need to show people that the super bomb might come out of this technology and we need to be able to regulate it before it does. He says, I'm thinking that our strategy basically says is we need to show people that the direction of travel is that you get to basically AI as a super bomb um, being made by a 17-year-old kid in five years. That's kind of their model is like within five years, effectively a 17-year-old kid is going to be able to use AI systems as a super weapon. So hawkish on risk, um, uh, I think in a responsible way, uh, obviously I'm a big fan of Anthropic, um, but a cool expose and anyway, highly recommend uh, people check it out. Yeah, very nice job summarizing a lot of the main points and uh, it is a long 
piece. So that's, I think, part of why you did have to touch on a lot. And because it's long, it, I will say, is not just on our topic. You know, it, it talks a lot about the specifics of this company. But as part of that, it touches on AI safety more broadly, the general kind of world that this is part of the ecosystem, the community. So definitely, yeah, very good article to understand a lot of what's going on around AI safety. Next article, seven AI companies agree to safeguards after pressure from the White House. So uh, yeah, safety-wise, this was a pretty big story. Uh, These big companies, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and others have made commitments to new standards of safety, security, and trust at a meeting with President Biden. This is a voluntary safeguard, so, you know, it's not necessarily uh, law or anything, but it is showing there's been quite a lot of activity from the White House in recent weeks to push forward on AI safety and regulation and you know, I mean, voluntary safeguards, cynically, you could say doesn't mean much, but at the same time, uh, it's clearly showing that there is a lot of pressure from the top. And you can definitely imagine, right, if, you know, it's voluntary, but there's, uh, there's a carrot and a stick. And the implication is, you know, if you don't follow this, then there might be consequences. Yeah, I, I'm super. Um, I'm super impressed with the administration, uh, the, the White House here, on the work that they've done uh, behind the scenes and and in the scenes to uh, to put this stuff together. Uh, this is, I think, simply like the biggest policy uh, story that we've had in the last year. AI policy story, I should say. Um, it's yeah, you're you're right to flag. These are voluntary commitments, but in the announcement, it's clear the intention is for there to be binding obligations in the future. Uh, and so the messaging here really is, you know, like you said, government has a lot of leverage. They come in and say, look, guys, we want this to be right sized. Like we want the the protocols, the policy to be right sized, and we can do that with your cooperation. You know, if you come in and help us. Or like we're going to overreach if not, and and you know in fairness these labs a lot of them that are that are participating here you know Anthropic we just talked about them with their safety focus Google which owns DeepMind which again is safety focused lab OpenAI a lot of these actors are like really really good faith actors and well informed on on these issues um, one thing to note too like a couple of the things that, that that they're committing to are checking their systems for their AI systems for their ability to do things like synthesize new bioweapons, or sorry, advise on the synthesis of bioweapons, or design new cyber attacks, things like that. Um, but they also include explicitly a check for self-replication ability. Now, if you're thinking self-replication ability, like can a model replicate itself, make copies of itself, this is traditionally associated, historically associated with existential risk narratives, like how an AI breaks out of the box and basically like ends up wiping out humanity at some point, there's this self-replication story that can come into play. And what's really interesting here is that first off, um, all of these things, you know, checking for cyber, checking for bio capabilities and self-replication, we saw all of those in OpenAI's GPT-4 evaluation process. Really, these, um, these commitments are almost, I mean, I don't want to say copy-pasted, but they very much mirror what we saw with GPT-4. And so now we're seeing all these labs kind of sign up for that same level of scrutiny 
including, and I thought this was interesting and somewhat surprising, Meta, which, you know, Yan LeCun heads AI up there, uh, heads up AI there, and has historically been a big critic uh, or a big skeptic of AI existential risk. So interestingly, Meta here is signing on to checking their models for self-replication. It's not that that's just an X-risk thing that, you know, could have applications for weaponization and things like that. You know, self-replication could make it a more effective weapon. Um, but interesting that Meta, in theory at least, has just signed on to do what traditionally, historically, would be considered a, an existential risk check on their systems. Yeah, definitely. And and aside from that particular safeguard, there's quite a lot of that. So the companies agreed to security testing in part by independent experts. And auditing is one of these things that in a community, there's been a lot of sort of uh, pretty pretty strong consensus, I guess, about that being a logical step. Research on bias and privacy concerns, and that is a pretty standard thing to include in uh, papers, right? So that's in the GPT-4 paper, that's in the cloud paper. Um, there's also information sharing about risks with governments and other organizations, development of tools to fight societal challenges, transparency measures to identify AI-generated materials. So watermarking is a big topic here uh, to fight deepfakes. So yeah, quite a quite a lot. And uh, I guess the hope is that there is some regulation coming from Congress, but in the absence of that, this is still pretty proactive uh, activity. And up next, we have the illusion of AI's existential risk. And so um, this is an interesting article. So uh, it's essentially this like uh, argument or, or a string of arguments why uh, for why we shouldn't worry about AI posing an existential risk. Um, I, I consume a lot of articles like this just because you know I, I tend to view AI as a source of existential risk, and I think it's really important to like track why you know why my views might be wrong. Um, so I thought this was a good rundown. Uh, it, it cites a lot of the arguments that you often hear about why you shouldn't worry. If I if I had to critique it, I, I would say there are like quite a few places where it sort of glosses over controversies, like really intense controversies that are at the crux really of what people are disagreeing on. And it just sort of asserts that facts are true, which I think in reality are the actual heart of the debate. Um, so it's not clear to me that it moves the ball forward on the debate, um, but I, I think it, it's still a, a good kind of, you know, a good rundown. If you want to look at some more skeptical literature on the stuff, um, one of the, the kind of key quotes here is they say, you know, by f uh, focusing on the possibility of a rogue superintelligence killing off the human species, um, we're distracting regulators, the public, and other AI researchers from work that mitigates what they call more pressing risks, such as mass surveillance, disinformation and manipulation, military use of AI, and so on. And, you know, this is like, okay, if you think that it's a long way off, um, or if you think that this is very unlikely, but really the whole point of the debate here is that, that neither of those things may actually be true. Like advanced AI, human level AI could actually come in the, the next couple of years, certainly within the next decade, that seems to be uh, you know, what a lot of people are arguing and that if it does, things go really, really bad. So, you know, I've got my, my reservations about this, but I do think it's great to engage with this sort of thing. Um, you know, their, their big concern seems to be this idea of, uh, these rogue AI scenarios often involve um, the AI doing things in the physical world. And, and they argue that like, that's a really big barrier to, to 
to breach, basically. That's a really big gap to bridge. Uh, the, these AI systems would, in practice, have to you know, find ways to like control the physical world that you can't necessarily do if you're just a piece of software. The canonical counterargument there is like these systems have already shown a capacity to manipulate humans very easily. GPT-4 famously did. Um, and so, you know, not that much of a leap. And besides, we're actually plugging these things into third-party APIs uh, as, as the chat GPT API is. So like, you know, these things are already plugged into the physical world. But I really think it's worth checking out, especially, especially if you find yourself nodding along with some of the uh, arguments I've made on uh, technical safety in the past. Um, yeah, check it out. It, you, you might uh, see something that uh, makes you think more deeply about this stuff. And I think it's always good to engage with that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. We've had we've had maybe at least one article in the past that had this very anti, you know, X-risk perspective uh, that was, let's say, dismissive. This is not the type of article. It's, it's a pretty carefully laid out argument and perspective. Uh, it uh, notably has this reality check that goes into what would actually have to happen for a prospect of extinction by a rogue AI to change from be being a purely hypothetical threat to a realistic threat. And it spends quite a lot of text and argument for why, let's say, it's, it's not a plausible position. And yes, you know, as you said, there are some counter arguments, but a lot of the time with people who are opposed to X risk, it's sort of a blanket dismissal. And I think that's part of the thing that people who are concerned about AI safety kind of take issue with is a lot of the time the people who don't worry about X risk, don't engage with arguments, they sort of dismiss it. So this is a good article that really I think does lay out not the entirety, but a lot of the case of the reason for skepticism for X risk. And I personally, you know, think uh, like this article says, there is, let's say, a possibility, but there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical. And at the end of the day, it could be boiled down to Pascal's wager, where, you know, like, yes, if it's a very minuscule probability, then it's a classic thing of like, whatever. So yeah, basically, as you say, this is a solid article. If you are, you know, pro X risk, or I don't know if you want to say pro, but if it's something that really concerns you, it's worth to read this to you know expand your perspective and, and have some of the opposite. Uh, I, I will say, I think this will be a fascinating focal point at some point. I, I think we really should set up a discussion about like the full AI X risk story. It'd be great to hear from like listeners if they'd like that. Um, because I actually, I thought that, that the article, while it's always good to see engagement with, with the arguments, like I thought that the counter arguments, they struck me as like really flimsy. And so I, I'd like, I'd love to like discuss with you, like what you found compelling and not, and it might be like a really interesting opportunity to see like, okay, what are like, what are the actual cruxes? You know, the places where you go, oh, okay, I'm making an assumption or, you know, that sort of thing. I feel like that could be a really cool, this, this, this post could almost be a cool framing for that, but. Yeah, uh, we, we definitely should do an, a special episode. I mean, I will say um, just briefly that one of my issues of X risk uh, arguments generally are often that, you know, it, there's no specification. There's no exploration of how would extinction actually happen. It's sort of often, you know, various super intelligence and it's way more advanced than people and it can just do this right right and so this is talking about well if we have a super intelligence assuming that you know what would be the next step how would it happen 
And if you read some of the classic arguments, you go to Eliezer Yudkowsky, right? It's, it's, he's written so much. And yet, if you try to find some discussion of like, how would it happen? It's like, oh, gray goo, some magic technology. Right. So, so okay. Anyway, well, maybe we'll, we'll park this for that later discussion. But um, there are absolutely a ton of, I think, very plausible concrete scenarios that people have proposed. Tragically, Yudkowsky has actually done this, but they're buried in like freaking 60,000 word essays. I don't know why he does this. No one is reading these things outside of this insanely niche community. But there, there actually are, I think, very plausible, like concrete, like scenarios. I spent a lot of time working in this space, um, specifically like pinning down, like what, what is a plausible series of events? I think that there may be assumptions buried in those that are wrong. And that's really interesting too. Um, but anyway, I, I would love to dive into this and like, maybe this is something that we can park for, for later. It's like a, a beers and uh, a beer and podcast discussion. <laughs> yeah. One of these days we'll get around to recording, you know, a more of a discussion type thing. That's not new specific, you know, if there are any particular topics, uh, listeners that you'd want us to do a whole special episode entirely about, uh, such as X risk, then yeah, be sure to tell us. And next, last article in the section, large majority of Americans have strong reservations about AI emergence, CNBC survey shows. So only 27% of Americans are comfortable with development of AI programs that mimic human thinking and potentially replace human activity. Uh, 69% of Americans are uncomfortable with AI, a 10-point increase from 2016. All demographic groups are now uncomfortable with AI. And they express discomfort uh, in AI with areas such as customer service, medical diagnosis, and cellular cars. And I got to say, even as an AI academic, you know, <laughs> as someone who's been in the space for a long time, I have some reservations and some discomfort about AI with ChatGPT just because it's happening so fast, right? And it feels like it's it's a lot of a lot of things will change and some of the things that will change maybe i'm not a fan of yeah i feel like uh, i'm not sure if we'll end up covering this article today but there was one i think it is it will be today uh there was one poor woman who was this like comedian and, and writer and you know found her job it was it was so try it was hard to read man like it was like she would get go from 10 requests for articles a week to then five and then three and then one and then money becomes an issue and anyway we'll get into it but it's just like there i can totally get why quite a few people are, are nervous about it from that perspective um one, one thing that i thought was i guess based on what i just said maybe not that surprising initially i thought it was surprising this has got so comfort with ai has gone down a lot in the last like eight years or so, or seven years since 2016. So uh, 36% were comfortable back then. And now it's 27% and went from 59% uncomfortable to 69%. And so I guess that's just as the real world impact of some of these things is being felt. But like, I don't know, I, I didn't necessarily expect that. Um, and, and oddly though, th then they go into the reasoning and they say that like, apparently most Americans, their concern doesn't come from wor being worried about getting displaced. Um, just 21% say, AI, sorry, 21% said AI would make their job easier. 18% thought AI could replace them at work. So the, the vast majority of people don't think that. Um, and then 10% said they thought AI would make their job more difficult. And then 49% said it would have no impact, which 
um, you know, depending on your view about AI is like <laughs> about half of people are in for a real surprise, but um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of a change, it feels like compared to 2016, it's much less of a hypothetical, like it's, it's happening right. and people know about AI and they see AI and it's much easier to have, you know, certain stronger feelings if it's not just a hypothetical idea, but it's actually happening. So the section is okay. So next we have our synthetic media and art section, uh, opening up with, you're going to see more AI written articles, whether you like it or not. And, um, this is basically about this uh, company geo media or G slash O media. I'm not too sure how to say that. Maybe go media. Um, it's a digital publisher that owns sites that include Gizmodo, the onion and Jezebel. And um, basically, they've been experimenting more and more with using AI to generate their articles. And this, perhaps unsurprisingly, has really pissed off their staff. And it's been the, the object of scorn in, as they say, social media circles. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they have an interview with people at the company, including executives, one of whom says, you know, I think it would be irresponsible not to be testing AI, testing it, AI uh, for, for text uh, generation for writing articles and other things like that. And, you know, I mean, I can kind of see this, like they're, they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. They're writing these articles. It's super competitive. If you've ever read the book, Trust Me, I'm Lying um, by Ryan Holiday, I like, I, I, I love that book. It's it's kind of outdated now, but it tells the story of like how how life is in these blogging companies and how absurdly high the output has to be to pump out articles really fast. And you can feel that economic pressure in a world of chat GPT. It's not obvious that you have a ton of options to not enter that fray, because uh, if you don't do it, your competition will. But there's still this issue of factuality, errors, you know, that sort of thing. And they cite as an example, uh, CNET, which was a company that experimented with AI written articles. And there's a big scandal about how a bunch of their articles contained a bunch of falsehoods. So um, sort of all, all sides of the coin, just an overview of some of the tension within these companies, as well as between them as AI just becomes a fact of life in, uh, uh, in, in writing content. Yeah. Yeah. We discussed, uh, keep saying, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had, uh, indeed, um, <laughs> we discussed last week how the initial rollout by GeoMedia of this AI stuff was kind of a mess, right? With uh, factual inaccuracies about Star Wars. And so this article shows how the company is, you know, not backing down despite a lot of backlash. It's going to be. Uh, still part of it. Um, there is some note here that unlike what happened before, like apparently with some of these published articles, no one at the company was involved in their publication somehow. So this company does say that now top editors will be involved, humans will be in the loop. Uh, so it'll be better and they'll kind of learn from their mistakes. Uh, but uh, yeah, this article, the title is pretty much true i think we are going to see ai written articles whether we like it or not and actually related to that just a kind of funny story that was in forbes uh world of warcraft's players trick ai scraping games website into publishing nonsense so there were some posts on reddit i believe where uh these players uh talked about this event, introduction of 
Dorbo. And uh, this website went ahead and scraped it and reported on it, despite it being nonsense. Next, Google says AI tools meant to help journalists and not replace them. So Google is exploring AI-enabled tools in partnership with news publishers with the goal of assisting journalists rather than replacing them, according to them. So the tools will help the journalists with tasks like generating headlines or different writing styles. This is kind of an experiment, right? So the idea is to help journalist uh, with their reporting and still allow journalists to do kind of essential things of creating and fact-checking articles. Uh, but, you know, of course, if you're a journalist, uh, you might still be worried. Yeah, I mean, I, I would bucket this in the category of like cases where we've had somebody say like, don't worry, AI is not coming for your job. It's only coming for like, you know, this like 40% of it that kind of fits in this funny thing. And then eventually it's like, oh shit, AI did come for my job. So, you know, right now it's tools. Um, the cynic in me is like, well, I don't see a clear reason why this doesn't eventually just subsume everything. Um, and I think I think right now, th- this is a, a song and dance that we've been through. This is not society's first rodeo at this line of argument. And I can understand <laughs> journalists not not taking this uh, specific, particularly well and saying like, look, this is clearly just a first step in a gradual process of erosion of our uh, our value add here, especially on the back of the other story that we uh, we just covered. So, you know, realistically, uh, this is going to be automated. I, like, I, I don't see how it doesn't end up that way. But um, in the transient, yes, it will make uh, journalists' jobs a lot easier, probably. And um, and Google, I think, generally is well-intentioned. They're trying to steward this technology well. But at a certain point, the technology just kind of will do what it does. And uh, I'd be surprised if you know we're having a conversation that sounds anything like this even five years from now, um, you know, let alone 10. If, if we have anything remotely like journalism, I strongly suspect it's going to be mostly done in t- like wholesale automated by, by AI. Yeah, I think as with coding, right, any of the mundane kind of uh, boring parts will be automated. The hope is, of course, we'll have journalists to do the investigative work to actually be on the ground, etc. So it's going to be a mix. This statement did come out after Google uh, has demonstrated this tool to executive at the New York Times, the Washington Pose and the Wall Street Journal. So they are actively you know, pitching and, and trying to sell this tool to these uh, companies uh, to make money. So, you know, it's it's always kind of a statement of, you know, we are well-intentioned, but of course, uh, as a product, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, no, and, and you're right to call it like the, invest- the investigative journalism piece is like something that's much harder to automate. But so much of journalism these days is aggregation. And how many articles do we see that are just an article wrapped around a tweet, explaining the tweet in context? That sort of thing is going to be 100% automatable by these systems and not that long from now, I suspect. And so, like, you know, the the concentric circles keep growing and eventually stuff gets swallowed up and um, hopefully, hopefully later rather than sooner is all. And let's do a couple of stories in the lightning round. First, actors decry existential crisis over AI-generated synthetic actors. We covered this really uh, quick last episode, so this is more to reiterate. The SAG-AFTRA union in the U.S. is now on strike 
partially or you know one of the major reasons for that is with actors concerned about AI generated actors or metahumans that replace them and this is both for you know purely AI creations and AI that mimics uh, the art actor with 3D body scan and then you generate the voice which we can already do and there you go you can now have this actor in your movie without having the actual person do the acting so a lot of the strike is about that as with the writer's strike that's also ongoing and uh yeah this article pretty much just covers how that is currently the case and goes into some of the details yeah i mean i I think it's again one of those things where it's it seems like it'll be really hard to automate and then you hit a critical threshold of technology and then boom, you know, an entire field um, uh, kind of is, is at risk. And anyway, the SAG negotiations are going to be really interesting because I think they are precedent setting too for the wider economy. Like how, how, does, uh, how does the leverage of labor play out against management in a context where management can at least threaten to automate large parts of what labor does? Exactly. I think this is very interesting as a sort of precedent setting move of, you know, in the age of AI, when automation is a thing, maybe we'll see a resurgence of unions for humans to be able (laughs) to, uh, you know, bargain. And some of the bargaining here is about actors having the license to their digital likeness instead of the studios being able to do whatever you want. Uh, Things like altering a performance in post-production. So that, you know, you don't need the actor, you can just change it up, Uh, things like that. And uh, the strike just recently started. I think we can expect it to go on for quite a while. And this will actually influence what you will see, you know, as far as things that are coming out uh, soon enough or actually maybe even in the near term with TV. Uh, So worth knowing. Uh, And next up, our last story in this section, and sadly for the episode, AI Tool creates South Park episodes with user in starring role. And so this is um, this company called Fable Simulation, and they've developed this AI AI tool that they call Showrunner, and it can create basically these full-on original episodes of South Park. They have dialogue, they have animation, voices, and editing the the works. And you can enter a prompt, and uh, the tool just generates an episode and it even creates a character based on your looks and your voice. Um, so this was created for research purposes. It's not going to be released to the public or for profit, uh, but maybe just a harbinger of things to come here. And um, the, <laughs> the creators of South Park and the show's broadcaster haven't been approached uh, about the experiment. So, you know, all kinds of <laughs> copyright questions, uh, you know, if you were to release this, certainly. Uh, but just shows you like how close this sort of wholesale automation of uh, TV show creation is. Yeah, we will link to the uh, site. You can watch this uh, 21 minute episode. I will say that I think the consensus is it's not very good. Uh, it's not nowhere near the kind of uh, level, but we did do this as part of a paper. So the paper is to infinity and beyond, show one and show on our agents in multi-agent simulations. So this is more of a demonstration. It is also a company, so you can sign up for a waitlist for this sort of thing. So it's not exactly with pure attentions. Uh, and, you know, it's also very true, of course, that with South Park, 
there's a lot of things that are in your favor in terms of being able to generate the animation and the uh, assets and visuals. So yeah, kind of a funny story. You can check it out uh, and see what you think of the episode. Uh, generally, I would say I agree that it's pretty subpar, but it is, of course, impressive that we can do this entire thing now from scratch. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like this sort of thing is, you know, it reminds me of the... the um... Uh, early days of image generation where you'd have, you know, this person does not exist and it's a like a AI generated face or something and it's super grainy. And then, you know, within a year, it's like the resolution just gets revolutionized and the next year again and again. Um, I kind of feel like this is, you know, whatever uh, you know, 2020 or so was for, for computer vision or image generation, this is, it feels like we're like around there for this sort of product. Um, pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, I think ChatGPT and Anthropic, given their focus on safety and not saying bad things, maybe South Park is safe from yeah, animation. That's true. So, yeah, they, have, <laughs> they have a moat. Their, their moat is cursing and sex jokes. Yeah. Okay, well, we're done. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Last Week in AI. Again, you can go to lastweekin.ai for a text newsletter and for the links for all this, also in the text description of the podcast. We would appreciate it if you share this podcast, if you rate us on Apple Podcasts. I'm pretty sure that somehow helps us get more listeners, although I may be wrong and just making it up. (laughs) But, you know, our egos could always use a boost. And uh, that's it. Uh, Hope you enjoyed the episode and be sure to keep tuning in.